everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian Beeler, and today we've got an interesting conversation. We've got an MVP in our midst, so we'll see what that's all about and learn quite a bit more about the Microsoft cloud infrastructure, what's going on there, what's going on via Azure Stack HCI and some of the services and, uh, and other things Microsoft's offering there around SQL Server and, and other database uh, offerings. Ernie, thanks for coming in and doing this today. No problem. Super excited. This is going to be fun. Yeah, so you're, you're an MVP. In the Microsoft world, everybody knows what that means. If you're not knee-deep into Microsoft, what's an MVP? So I'm relatively new to this as well. I'm, I'm oh, so you don't MVP. know the answer to Yeah, that. no, it's kind of like, I don't know, I got to go Google that. <laughs> great no, so great a, start. <laughs> yeah, right? No, so I've been an MVP for about a year now. Uh, Renewal is actually coming up. MVPs are uh, resources that Microsoft has identified uh, folks and individuals that have contributed to the tech community over the years that are actively engaged with customers or even just, uh, you know, folks that maybe are running their own home lab in their basement or something. Um, they don't necessarily need to be a professional and, and tech being their profession. I just happen to work for uh, an ISV, but the two sometimes overlap, but they don't necessarily need to. You know, it's funny because uh, the MVP program has been around forever and it's uh, Microsoft used to use it in, in a way to incentivize uh, the use of their products amongst highly active and engaged people. Now it's probably anyone with a couple, you know, tens of thousands of followers on TikTok or you know, whatever it is, right, to, to help do the evangelization of, of Microsoft products. But way back when, I used to be an MVP for this, this product called Spot. I don't know if you've ever even heard of this. But they, they used to put, uh, Microsoft put transmitters in radio uh, station tower you know, infrastructure. And it didn't do much, but it would broadcast out over the radio signals, things like weather and news. And I think you could even set up you know, personalized alerts. I mean, this is before everyone had a cell phone in their, their pocket right. or, or maybe at a similar time. But uh, yes, a very short-lived technology that uh, is nowhere near relevant to much of anything today. But it's funny that that stuff, like it kind of lingers around with, I think, like HD FM radio, like you see like remnants of it still there, and at least in the US. So it's kind of cool tech that, that you know, it, it, it moved on to something else. Yeah, but, you know, to be fair, like the radio kind of always works. So while it may not cover everybody in, in all places and, you know, if you're on the backside of a hill, but radio as a technology is still pretty neat and, and yeah. highly capable for what it does. Right. Yeah, so we didn't join this, uh, this pod together to talk uh, radio and spot technology. Uh, one other disclosure though, so your, your day job though, while you're an MVP and wear a cape at night, your day job is with Commvault, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yep, so okay. I work for Commvault, uh, if you're familiar with our backup software. I do not, I'm not a software engineer by trade. Uh, I work for our internal IT department so I am using the technologies a lot that we're going to be talking about internally. It's not stuff that necessarily we're, we're selling to our customers or telling our customers to use. It's more us as a medium-sized enterprise, what we are using internally there. Right. Well, that makes sense. I just want to make sure if you start slinging mud at like Veeam or uh, you know Haiku or right, Zerto, right, right. That, that just everyone knows, you know, Ernie, Ernie may go off the rails and start talking trash on the backup provider. Uh, we have uh, uh, in the MVP community, the good thing is there's a lot of folks that do use other software and we actively are engaged with each other about, you know, kind of common things we may see acting up between or even with the various different pieces of software that are out there that do kind of the same thing. So it's a, All right. it's not, it's not too violent. You know, it's not Yankees and Red Sox or anything like that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so you're in the Microsoft world. Uh, we've, we, we, uh, preface this conversation with that and, uh, and you're in the IT organization at Commvault. So that, that's all good background. What is your exposure then to Microsoft products? What are you using, uh, on-prem cloud in terms of, uh, uh, hypervisor software? Mm -hmm. Just what, what, what's your uh, consumption look like? We are overwhelmingly a majority Microsoft shop. Um, okay. we, we tend to have a very large presence in Azure uh, for production workloads, as well as some dev test type of things. Um, but we also have a traditional on-prem, we have our own data center in our headquarters. Uh, we have a couple co-locations and remote offices throughout the world. So we still have a physical presence on-prem as I'm sure a lot of enterprises do. So hybrid, 
connectivity since like 2018, 2019, since that buzzword started getting thrown out, hybrid cloud. Um, we've been kind of right there, nose deep in it, getting our, getting our hands dirty with it in some capacity. So um, again, majority Microsoft, Hyper-V, and most recently Azure Stack HCI as our uh, production hypervisor workload. That's interesting because you know the still the the predominant hypervisor continues to be uh, VMware ESXi. I'm curious why Hyper V. What has that done for you guys? Had you been on VMware before? What what's the history there? Um, without going too much into it, the, the the short answer, as I'm sure everyone probably knows, is, is is licensing and pricing. So it's it's expensive to have a large VMware footprint if you're committed to it and your infrastructure and automation is built around it from you know day one, then you may have a wrangle on it, but especially with the recent acquisition, um, costs go up. Uh, maybe or maybe not you're happy with support that may have been coming along with it. Um, again, we are a Microsoft Gold partner. It just seemed like a natural fit for the workloads that we were running, and this is decisions that were made before I was involved. Sure. Um, but it's, it just was a, it was a natural thing. If we're gonna be running a lot of Windows server workloads and we're already paying for the at, at the time windows data center licensing um why wouldn't we just use the hypervisor built into it so yeah. that's kind of the uh, the short sweet answer no it makes sense and so one of the things you also mentioned there was azure stack hci so i want to mm -hmm. understand that a little bit too uh, because where we're going to go is going to talk a little bit about azure sure. stack hci azure cloud and then some of the mm -hmm. the services in between um, we've talked a lot about Azure Stack HCI. We've written a lot about uh, about it. We've done a couple of reviews with Data On on some of their all flash and and hybrid configurations. Uh, I've had Cosmos on the podcast mm -hmm. and talked about Azure Stack HCI quite a bit. And the one thing that he was excited about last time uh, we we did the pod was that in the old days, Azure Stack HCI was kind of like a feature of Windows Server, like a checkbox. Yep. Of, Turn yep. this server from a server into an HCI node, basically, and you know, join up with some others, and off you go. Uh, but it feels like when when he and I talked, it's probably been six months, and I'll I'll try to remember to link it in the uh, hmm. in the description here for those that want to check that out. Uh, but it really feels like that at that point, the intent was to really mature the product and make it its own independent stack. Uh, I'm curious, you know, how deep you are on on the on the on-prem HCI product and and whether or not whether or not that looks real to you to your eyes. To to summarize it, we are pot committed to Azure Stack HCI at this point from our internal IT perspective. Um, we, like I said, we've been running. We have. Do we have a VMware footprint? Of course. Is it large? Absolutely not. Um, we have we used legacy Windows Server in the past? Yes. Do we still have some? Yes. Do we use NetApp and other SAN-based storage? Of course we do. But there just seems to be this um, ease of management that our IT department has kind of fallen in love with when it comes to the, the software-defined storage stuff that you get with uh, storage spaces direct, and then obviously the evolution of the OS into Azure Stack HCI. Right. Um, there's, I mean, I could sit here and, and go on for hours about the the value add and the bonuses of HCI, you know, your billing, your support experience is, is, is significantly better than the traditional uh, enterprise support experience that you may be getting with traditional server SKU. Um, yeah, I think I've, I've done a few videos detailing like top five reasons why you should move over if you're interested. Uh, from a financial perspective, um, if you, again, if you're already paying for data center licensing and you have software assurance, it kind of is free, like nothing's free, but it's, you've already paid for it, you might as well look into it. Uh, the update cadence is significantly faster. New features are coming to uh, GA significantly faster than with long-term support branch. So it's, it just, all those things just kind of fit right into our vision. So it well, was kind it, of a no because, because you're hybrid though too, it seems to me, and I'd be interested in your perspective, that Microsoft with the Azure Stack HCI product, the on-prem bit, is really trying hard to take the cloud Azure features and functionality and drive those into the on-prem product. Yep. And I think we're a long way from, from feature parity you know, between the two, but it feels like uh, with AKS, with uh, virtual desktop, with some other stuff, they're trying to really push that down from what they've learned on cloud to on-prem to make that more seamless for, for people Correct. like you that are in a hybrid scenario. Yeah, and and 
that was kind of the second piece of the puzzle where we are building out our governance and and our proper security structure and and all that happy stuff that you have to worry about in the cloud. How do we wrangle it out on-prem? Because even though there may not traditionally have been a cost associated to it, you still have to worry about security policy and just kind of your posture on-prem of, of not letting it be the Wild West like it may have been. And, and a lot of the uh, Azure Arc-related things that you mentioned uh, have, have simplified that dramatically for us. Um, again, automation is kind of the, our fiscal year is about to start and that's like our North Star, like how can we handle all this stuff? And it's kind of oh, Azure Arc, like one, one line right there, we can do it all with Azure Arc. So we're excited to be um, you know, transitioning to, to that as, a, as kind of our guiding thing. Well, you said I mentioned it, but I never said the ARC word, and so... Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Mr. MVP is, uh, is, 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 like I said, you're very deep in the, the Microsoft technologies. It would be um, my theory, my supposition, that most people don't really understand what ARC is or the nuance there. So I know you mm -hmm. started to go down that road, but take half a step back for me and just do a hit on from your view as a practitioner, this will be really interesting, not as a marketer, right? What, in your view, what is ARC? What does it encompass? So if you were to just ask me as like a lay person explaining it to my father, who's <laughs> also a lay person when it comes to tech, uh, I, I would turn around and be like, it, it's, it's, it is, it's a branding term. You know, it's, it's a collection, a suite, a, a, a bunch of different technologies that Microsoft has um, enabled to be cloud connected. So let's say you have SQL servers on-prem or uh, hosted in AWS even, and you want to kind of control them from a single pane of glass, or you want to just monitor usage, you can leverage Azure Arc in some capacity. If you are uh, large in the Kubernetes ecosystem and you have maybe, again, AWS EKS stack, so that's uh, Elastic Kubernetes Service, um, or AKS in the cloud, that's Azure Kubernetes Service, or even you're just running your own Kubernetes cluster on a Raspberry Pi in your basement, um, you can connect that through Azure Arc to your Azure subscription and tenant, where then you can, again, manage it through a single pane of glass, you can leverage command line, you can um, use it as a jump off point for automation, a host of other things. And those are just two of the many Azure Arc connected services that exist right now. Um, well, let, let's pick one. Let's pick one because, you know, like SQL Server, I'm sure, sure you guys do a ton of SQL. It's you know one of the most mm -hmm. ubiquitous databases out there. When you think about how SQL is made available, or visibility for SQL, or manageability is made available through Azure Arc, it's a bit of a spectrum, though, isn't it? Because some you're talking about some of the visibility into what's going on in your entire ecosystem. But then there's this whole other managed services bit that that I want to get into and understand too. So, kind of kind of break that down, and let's just use SQL as a as a baseline app that that most people sure. understand. Yeah. So so when you're thinking about SQL, and if you were to ask someone on prem, hey, I need a bunch of SQL servers spun up for something, whether it's a production workload or maybe some developers are testing some software and they need just a boatload of SQL to, uh, to test it against. Um, traditionally, if you're familiar, it's a somewhat manual process of installing SQL Server. If you want to worry about high availability, you need multiple SQL, you need multiple servers to spin that up. You need the right storage and you need to worry about uh, fault tolerance and all of that. So there's a lot of um, unique skill sets and, and, and fault domains you need to worry about uh, just to even set that up and sprawl it um, with something like SQL Server managed instances uh, de that's deployed on-prem and managed through Azure Arc, you're leveraging the, um, I'm gonna start throwing out a lot of words here. So let's let's try to keep it simple as possible. You're going to be leveraging a, 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 a small little virtual appliance that lives on your hardware on-prem. And that appliance is going to be communicating up to Azure. And when you say, I need a highly available SQL deployment, it will phone home to your hardware on-prem and it will spin out um, a couple containers of SQL Server. So ultimately, this is running 
a Linux version of SQL, because that's a new thing now that you can do with SQL Server. You can have a Linux build of it. It's running inside a container image. If you're familiar with containers and Docker, it's running on a similar engine to that. And it is scaled out using Kubernetes that is also managed for you across all of those uh, pieces of the hardware that live on-prem for high availability. And your storage, which is already clustered and configured through the magic of Hyper-V, or if you're using VMware, you can also use that. Um, it is able to um, leverage the existing high availability nature of that. And now you just have these pods that are pods containers that are running across all this hardware, uh, certain vCPU size, certain memory size that are, are uh, based on you know, some parameters they may pass in when you said to go deploy it. And let's say there's some kind of catastrophic failure on one of those containers. Well, the magic of Kubernetes will spin up a new one for you and your data stays resilient. So again, I'm throwing a lot of words out there, but at the end of the day, the, the whole architecture is built around you not needing to worry about that high availability because it's all handled for you at deployment time. So as long as your prereqs are met, which is give me a hypervisor to put this on, the, the product itself handles the, uh, the actual management and life cycle of it. Well, it's interesting because I think it matters who you're talking to, because if you're talking to any app developers, what you just, just described, first of all, they'll probably never see it. They just know SQL's working and they don't mm -hmm. really care. And, and you say things like containers and they nod along, because yeah, we, we get that, sure. that sort of uh, lifestyle. The traditional uh, application managers though, when they hear SQL on Linux in a container, probably had some sort of uh, blood pressure rise of 20 to 30 points. Yep. Uh, what have you guys found as, as you've been working on this in terms of acceptance? And it's just kind of weird, right? <laughs> to, to think about doing it that way. It, what, what have you seen in terms of you know, reaction from practitioners and their willingness to, to say, yeah, maybe I don't want to do the legwork of installing and updating SQL. Maybe it would be nice just to you know, kind of click a button and go. So that, that's, that's a major one. The, the actual not having to worry about patching um, an operating system and then a build of SQL that also lives on that operating system is, is huge. Because I can tell you right now, we have some large on-prem traditional SQL server availability group deployments. And despite them being virtualized and, and us having enough high availability and resiliency to reboot one at a time and update one at a time, it's a, it's a headache. It's a, it, is a, it is a very uh, orchestrated song and dance just to get us through that patching cycle. And it's not that it's difficult, but it's time consuming. The beauty of containerization is you have something called a base image with, which contains those binaries of SQL Server. And those don't necessarily have the, the, the persistent data of the database itself in them. So when you're just updating, you're just saying, hey, spin down this image spin up a new image with the new binaries and just attach the data back to it. And it's not instantaneous, but it's pretty darn near instantaneous. So the patching and update cycle is reduced down to minutes instead of hours in some cases or days, right. depending on how many machines you're dealing with. Um, you also mentioned the like kind of obfuscation of the back end one thing I've been trying to get through to our developers for years now is, and this is a term that's very popular in the IT world, stop treating your servers like pets, treat them like cattle. And what I mean by that is it's a SQL server. Who cares if, if the operating system, like, like unless you're doing very, very customized customizations and tweaks and stuff on the OS, which I don't know why you would be. If, if something bad happens to that SQL server or that OS, it doesn't matter as long as the data integrity of SQL itself, the databases, the MDF and log files are still good. That should be all you really care about at the end of the day. So again, with this containerization portion, yeah, the traditional admin may turn around and kind of crawl in their skin a bit about thinking, oh my goodness, I need to be familiar with Linux now. I need to be familiar with Kubernetes and, and containers and how do I troubleshoot things? You kind of don't. Is like, Again, if the data is good, kill a pod if it's acting up and it'll just spawn a new one for you. And assuming the data is good and copacetic, it'll mount it and you'll be back up and running. And if for whatever reason that container 
that specific one of n amount of containers for your high availability is not working, the the natural uh, resiliency of Kubernetes, where there's health checks built in to say, hey, can I even listen on port 1433? All those things are kind of handled and it removes things from the load balance equation so that you're not hitting a bad node, for example. So those are the two biggest things for us. It was, it was getting to the point where uh, we don't, we don't treat our, we don't treat our servers like pets. We, we treat them, we treat them like cattle and we eliminate them when, uh, when, when it's, when it's time to. And <laughs> turn them into juicy steaks. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I'm laughing because you said, don't treat your servers like pets. When we started, um, not, not storage view, but the company before we hosted all of our own stuff. We did have some databases. We had all the stuff that, that, you know, growing small businesses have. And we absolutely named every single one of our servers, which is absolutely hilarious. We named them after uh, famous pigs. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we had Babe, and we had uh, a big storage server that was Porky, and we had, uh, I don't know, three or four other ones. I st the fact that I still remember the first couple is, uh, is surprising. Um, there is sometimes a fond emotional attachment to absolutely to, to hardware. I've been in a thousand labs, and 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 I'm sure you've seen the same where the bezels will be there, and then uh, there'll be like the yellow tape, like a little printout tape that'll have you know it'll have a server ID, but oftentimes mm -hmm. it's a human name or or some sci-fi thing of you know, oh yeah board big, big ones, or whatever. Big ones for us were. Uh... We're definitely like Greek gods. Yeah, I'm sure that's one of our transformer names. And then I think in college, my college lab, I was naming them off of budget beer. So there was like Bush, Natty, and yeah, oh yeah, Red Perfect. Dog, just like ridiculous things. Um, but yeah, and but again, we're talking, you know, when you're talking 15, 20 years ago, that those were that was the norm. And I don't necessarily mean naming your computers after beer, but I, <laughs> but the the concept of like just treating them like like they're your babies and keeping them up and running was a full time job. And at the scale Absolutely. that technology has grown at now, you just can't. You just, it's impossible. No, you're you're right. I mean, it, it's different if I'm sitting here with seven servers in sure. you know a, a baby half rack in my in mm -hmm. my SMB. Uh, but if I'm, you know, a serious business, not, I mean, you don't even have to be enterprise scale. Just, sure. you know, a, a decent size operation. Having somebody go in and manually run all that stuff on Tuesday is is tedious and mm -hmm. it's expensive. And depending on how big your IT org is, and I think that's really the challenge for SMBs is the size of the IT org. You might only have one person that that's skilled in doing that and if they're not there or something happens or they quit or whatever absolutely uh, you've got a problem so I, I do like the this uh, this notion of as a service consumption mm -hmm. from an from an opex standpoint of look it just happens and so long as I can get support if something goes wrong and 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 that's one of the things you were talking about before then I then I feel okay about that um, in terms of what you're doing with SQL, uh, managed SQL, or actually, I'm assuming, are you guys using this? In, we in we have we not in product. Well, it depends on what your term is production, but no, we're not using it okay. from a. We are using it at our workplace for our developers and our engineers to okay. rapidly spin up and spin down kind of like test environments for the software that we write. Um, Traditionally, that would have been a VM with like a sysprepped image of Windows and SQL Server there. And then there were manual steps that needed to occur. But from like soup to nuts, start to finish, that process was taking, I mean, 10, 15 minutes. And now it's down to 10 to 15 seconds to make a SQL Server on demand using, using Arc and, and the, whole, uh, the whole suite of, of tools. Mm. Um, but no, we are not running production workloads on it from a like customer facing perspective. Only because of the way our like what what we sell doesn't fit into that category. Right. Okay. But you see, you still see the operational benefits even on a smaller scale for your app dev teams to be able to get in there to quickly spin things up and theoretically tear them down as well. Absolutely. So for those teams, 
if they were to consume this through your on-prem Azure Stack HCI or Azure Cloud, how similar does it feel and, and where, where might there be a little bit of a, a disconnect, if any, maybe not? I'm, I'm not sure from a practitioner sure. standpoint. So from a traditional, traditional being Azure Cloud, public cloud, um, you, if you're not manipulating this through like Azure Command Line or Azure PowerShell, um, you're just clicking, clicking through the Azure portal and saying, hey, give me a SQL managed instance with this amount of vCPUs and you've got a little slider uh, and how many, how much memory can be allocated to it and the storage account or the disk that's attached to it. Um, a lot of that kind of bleeds over into the, the, the on-prem managed side of things. It, you have some similar UI portal nuances, but there's some key differences. Um, and it's, it's mostly, again, about like the access you have to the back end infrastructure. So meaning you're running this on hardware that lives in your data center. It can technically live in Azure on a VM as well. I don't know why you would do that other than just to kind of like test it. But you are managing and you are responsible for the physical hardware and the networking there as well. And while I did say earlier that, you know, oh, your pods and your deployments, you know, if they're healthy you, and or if they're, you're good and if they're not healthy, you just delete them and you spend... There, there obviously can be like a hardware failure. Like we, we've, if we've been in a data center, you've had a failed RAID controller happen once, or you've had a, 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 a disk die on you, sure. or you've had you know, backplane issues. Those types of things can still happen. And you as the customer are responsible for, for administrating them. So there is some back end administrative tools that you have available that you wouldn't have had available in the public cloud. Um, you also can just directly manipulate the, uh, again, I mentioned earlier, this is all orchestrated through Kubernetes. So if you're familiar with Kubernetes, you can also kind of dig into it through, uh, through the Kubernetes controller. Uh, it's, it's called kubectl. It's the command line uh, you know, tool to manage Kubernetes. Um, you can also get into to it that way and kind of see what's going on and 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 troubleshoot and and scale things out manually if you wanted to. Again, it's more you basically have more things exposed to you on prem versus in the cloud, where a lot of it is again obfuscated behind a pane of glass. Okay, so but you still through Arc then, if you're running in your hybrid environment like this, you're still getting the visibility into all of these workloads regardless of where they are, right? Correct, yeah, you're gonna see databases and, and performance stats and metrics and all of that, and you can control it directly through ARM, ARM being uh, Azure Resource Manager. So if you had automation and templates made um, to say like, hey, Azure, here's a template file with these 20 SQL servers I need made with these settings and these names and and this type of performance, these metrics, CPU, RAM, you can shove that into Azure Arm and it'll spit it out on-prem for you again without you having to actually be at your keyboard in a cluster typing and saying do this. And a lot of that, a lot of that is analogous to what you would have already been doing with Azure, um, with with traditional Azure cloud manage SQL. They've, they've kind of like unified the terminologies. Yeah. So when you think about managed SQL, then you know, we talked about deployments fast and easy. It's resilient, sort of inherent in, in, in Kubernetes. Uh, patch management kind of goes, well, goes away and is, is automated and, and part of that service. Is there anything else at a you know, high level that's really important to call out either operationally or, or um, you know, just from a uh, from an overall benefit standpoint? So there's definitely benefits of running it on your own hardware because you get to control like the, the nuance of performance. Um, right. In the cloud, you tend to, the traditional cloud, you tend to pay a lot for uh, premium or ultra SSD, for example, or a storage account that may allow you to have a certain amount of IO um, or, or even like inter-site bandwidth issues if it's on-prem and your workload that's touching the SQL server is also on-prem, you obviously get the benefit of it being hyper-quick 
in terms of latency because you're probably in the same data center. So you don't need to worry about the internet or Azure's backbone being a, a bottleneck. Um, you also get to control the storage that it's running on. And that's probably something that, that you guys see every day. Um, if you know that you're running something that's like super read intensive versus super write intensive, well, you can, if your hardware on-prem can be customized from your OEM of choice, you can say, I want this specific type of NVMe or this specific type of SSD, or maybe I don't even care about the, 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 the IO or latency in the sub microsecond range. I, I care more about, um, you know, the capacity. Like I have a petabyte of SQL data that is kind of right once and read never, but it just needs to be there. So you can throw a bunch of spinning rust at your cluster and well, it's there. You get, you just get a lot more customization for your workloads. And that's not something that you can do very easily in Azure. And even if you can, it's going to be significantly more expensive because you have to pay for that storage in Azure on a monthly basis. That's, that's always the rub, right? Is mm -hmm. you get it fast and you get it easy in the cloud. But uh, as soon as you, as you say, want to drip into some of the more premium offerings around storage or connectivity, I mean, the, the cost starts to get, uh, get out of control. But during COVID, when we had all these, you know, accessibility and uh, supply chain issues, the cloud mm -hmm. was still there and absolutely and was doing a pretty good job. And I, I do, I do hear a lot about trying to take some of those expensive workloads and repatriate them and and put them together. For me, though, Azure Stack HCI has been such an anomaly because it's so much more cost effective than than a lot of the other HCI solutions, and it's really fast. It's faster yeah. than vSAN. Yeah. Uh, now we haven't tested VCN's ESA, but up to that point, everything we saw Azure Stack HCI was always faster and by a wide margin. I I do think, especially for smaller orgs, SMBs, it's a great place to to consider an investment if uh, if if you're a Microsoft shop or can become one. If you have a Azure subscription available to you, it is a no-brainer to just go download the trial install the ISO on some kit that you have lying around and just give it a spin. You, you basically get it for free for, I, I don't remember if it's 60 or 90 days at this point. Um, you, while raw IO is so important to a lot of people, it's a great metric. I, in my world, have found that the amount of IOPS, like if I'm getting 2 million, 6 million, 12 million IOPS, that to me isn't necessarily the most important thing. It's more the latency that I can, uh, or the, the lack of latency, I should say, that, that my workload is, is possibly generating and being affected by. But again, it's also that support structure you get with the product. Um, I can remember back in the server 2016 and 2019 days, just to just keep apples to apples here, so to speak, with Microsoft, um, when Storage Spaces Direct first came out, there were a lot of issues. There were a lot of problems. Um, I had to open up uh, enterprise support tickets all the time, and it got to a point where the store, the, the the support experience wasn't great for one reason or another. Whether I was getting someone that may not have been technically skilled to answer our unique questions, or we just had some weird bug that we ran into, and we just needed to get the product group involved, and we weren't getting that channel. Um, the difference is with Azure Stack HCI, when you have a problem, you are opening a ticket through the Azure portal. And again, it's this unified experience where it just kind of comes free with the price you're paying for Azure Stack HCI on a monthly basis. Um, and they have a unique set of engineers that are just tailored specifically to this. You're not going to be getting uh, third-party contractors that maybe they're outsourcing or, or, or working right. with on the side. It is a It has been a night and day shift. And again, in our world where it's, critical, we, we need to have that support that, that can actually hold us up in, in problem times. Well, that's a hard thing to articulate too, because Microsoft will say, you know, in a press release or in, in you know, some sort of scope document around Azure Stack HCI, you know, we have this stuff, but until you need it, until you use mm -hmm. it, most people, when they buy these things, don't spend a lot of time, uh, you know, creating provisional tickets just to see what the experience is like. Yeah. So, you know, the story you know, that you just told is one that, that needs to be told more probably because again, that's a tremendous part of the value prop of the ongoing OPEX benefit of, of you know, doing any of these things 
uh, either as a service and, and sort of even on-prem Azure Stack HCI is sort of service-y, I think, in the way they bill it as sort of a, mm-hmm. uh, a subscription, right? So you, you're paying for the hardware, uh, but then you've got the, uh, the licensing for the, the software that goes with it. But that needs, if you're going to do, you know, deploy that model, that needs to be supported and it has to be a really great experience for customers or they'll be gone on the, the next refresh. Absolutely. Yeah, I can't tell you the, like, if it's 365 days in a year, we have a production workload running and, you know, five days of the year we have an outage, let's say, which is a lot. Um, the aggravation and stress and the receding hairline that that is a result of all that stress um, causes and if I just had a better experience how like I could it's one thing outages happen but it's another thing when you're dealing with 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 something that just isn't getting the movement that you expect it to and I just have in the past two and a half years that we've been running HCI as our primary production workload hypervisor soft just just the whole suite of everything I have yet to run into that experience I've opened up dozens and dozens of tickets and every one of them is closed within days like full problem resolved. I'm not, again, I'm not just blowing smoke. It's, it is, it has been night and day. Hmm. Well, that's a, that's an important consideration. Um, we talked a lot about SQL. I think I might've managed uh, virtual desktops and, and AKS as we sort of drove through the, uh, uh, the notion mm-hmm. of, of Microsoft really wanting to take these cloud services and push them down to uh, Azure Stack HCI. Do you have any hands-on experience with either, or are there any other services you guys are using that you're excited about that can yeah. transition between the, your hybrid cloud scenario? Yeah, more so than even the the, the SQL the SQL solutions that they have. Um, AVD on HCI, which is Azure Virtual Desktop on HCI, is um, the next big thing that's coming down the pike. It is. Um, uh, GA has not been announced yet. It's been public preview for well over a year now. For a while, um, you, yeah. yeah. you can think of it as kind of the com- competitor to like VMware Horizon or uh, Zen Citrix's product. Um, the If you're familiar with AVD in traditional Azure, uh, it's basically spin up some VMs on demand in Azure and users can RDP to them through the uh, remote desktop client app, the new one, not the one that's built into Windows. Uh, and you're able to uh, have pooled multi-session machines or personal one-to-one assigned machines. So that's now available on-prem through AVD on HCI. Uh, we are very heavily interested in this, uh, again, with, with remote work uh, and kind of avoiding large CapEx purchases for like laptop uh, recycle, hardware recycle, refreshes, things like that. And then also being concerned about uh, data governance and another one that's thrown around yeah security but then another one that's thrown around is data gravity um and i'll explain that one in a minute that was kind of the reason why we're like hey this is this is where we got to focus our energies on as the next thing so it's it's still in public preview avd on hdi um we're hoping to get some more information in the next coming weeks or months on general availability and pricing and kind of what that's going to look like and then the roadmap for all the features uh, but we're super excited about it. Uh, well, I mean, any more with the, the the thin clients are so nice now these days. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, bring your own device and, mm-hmm. and having just an, an RDP session, as you said, to to get into your, your work machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the technology to, to push pixels over the line has become so good. Yeah. Uh, we, do, we do a ton of uh, thin client reviews end user computing where we're looking at, at, at these you know, workloads specifically. And yeah, I mean, you, you may not necessarily you know, want to edit 4, 4K, 8K video on your general purpose machine, mm-hmm. but you can amp these things up, of course. Absolutely. With things like GPUs. And now if you've got a, a big distributed workforce, well, rather than putting a, you know, a several thousand dollar GPU in, in every system, mm-hmm. if I had, you know, some in the data center and, and we Absolutely. just, you know, managed access, I mean, that, that goes a long way to, uh, to making teams more efficient. And, you know, around the security bit, the pushing pixels is a lot safer. All that data center or all that data stays in the data center. Yeah. And it makes it a lot harder to to leave a laptop behind in a in a cab mm-hmm. or an Uber, I guess, or, or whatever. And uh, for international teams, uh, you, know, you might be worried about 
uh, corporate espionage, things like that. I mean, it, those are real problems. Uh, data exfiltration is the number one concern that keeps me up at night. And I tell that really? to my security guys. Um, yeah, there's, you said it best. Pushing pixels is a lot more secure than a v, even a VPN connection. Um, you know, that may be encrypted, but if, you know, John Doe is using his work laptop or his, I should say his personal laptop and he installed VPN client on there and forgot to disconnect and then his mm -hmm. kid goes on and decides to start doing whatever on there. Lord knows what could end up happening between that tunnel from point A to point B, you know, whether it's cryptoware and you can have all the endpoint protection you want and firewall rules you want, but if you open up that door, they can get in. And, and the beauty of remote desktop is it's literally just like pixels and audio and video. It's, it's, it's not really a big concern. Or I no, should I just, say, it's less. No, I just of a love having. I just love having the stuff in the data center so that you can back it up. I mean, that's well, the that, best. That thing. too. So you you mentioned um, a dispersed geographical workforce, and we have a lot of that here. We have a large. Uh, we have a large workforce in Australia. We have a large workforce in India, and our main data center is in New Jersey. So when these folks need to manipulate large files, tens of gigabytes in size, doing that over a VPN connection is basically like. It's it's not impossible, but it's pretty darn improbable to have a functioning, you know, work life balance. You're just going to be sitting there forever. Mm -hmm. So, giving them jump boxes, if you will, that live in our data center, and this is that term data gravity. The data is the the big thing that 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 necessitates performance here. So, having their VMs local to that data allows them to manipulate that data significantly faster at the cost of some latency with the RDP session, but that's just screen redraws and mouse clicks. That's a lot faster than moving 10 gigs of data over the wire and who knows how fast that, that pipe is to even get it across the water. So that was that was the other big reason. Other You said it, backups obviously are great. It's local or data center, um, but just, the, just the, the user experience is significantly better. Yeah. Uh, so you're doing virtual desktop. Are you doing some on-prem now? Or are you doing that in Azure? What, we what are, we are heavily, heavily testing it on-prem. Uh, we are currently leveraging Azure public AVD, like traditional AVD. That's kind of like a fail over type of scenario. So if the 14 internet connections to our data center went down and no one could get in, uh, yeah, okay. We spin up some VMs in the cloud and they connect to those. Um, but yes, the, we have a couple hundred VMs that are uh, being used individually by users as personal uh, session hosts. Um, and then we also have a number of multi-session uh, Windows 10 and Windows 11 VMs that live on-prem. And that's, that's kind of where this is going to be big for people. Getting access to Windows 10, Windows client SKU multi-session on-prem and not have to be in the cloud and you can load up like 10, 15, 20 people onto a single VM. Yeah, it's got more cores than maybe uh, your, your normal one-to-one, -one, but you can densely pack that thing up. And again, if you got GPU partitioning enabled, um, man, oh man, the, the, there, are, there are some potentials for big cost savings there. Yeah, I mean, that's the trick, right? Is these, the evolution of these products tends to be, you know, gen one is pretty baseline, task worker friendly kind of stuff. Uh, I don't know if GPU slicing will be in the initial GA. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you have any visibility into that, but you know the way the speed at which they layer on additional features, I think, is going to be pretty critical to the success for AVD on-prem. I, I don't see any, any other way if they if they can't do it quickly, the, it may not catch on. Well, that's the that's the beauty of this iterative approach with the whole HCI stuff in general. So just to kind of segue back to Azure Stack HCI, the, the, the operating system to begin with, you are having a release cadence that's every year now. And in reality, it's almost every six months only because you're getting those public previews fairly quickly out to the, to the public to, to even test this stuff. So yeah, we got GPUP, uh, that's GPU partitioning um, in, in a recent release of the OS itself, well, now that allows your layers of services built on top of this OS to, to leverage it. Of it yeah. So AVD HCI now, it's not, it's not publicly available yet, but GPUP is gonna be available to it. Same thing with AKS hybrid. So your Kubernetes workloads may need a GPU, not for actual like graphics processing, but maybe 
doing some very specific floating point math or, or number crunching or goodness, any kind of crypto nonsense that I'm not well versed in. And if you have that, if you have those exposed to your VMs, okay, well now you're able to let your containers touch the, the, the GPU itself. So there's, there's a lot of benefit there. I think machine learning was the big one with, with, with Kubernetes and, and GPUs on-prem. That was the kind of like, hey, we have these images that need to be processed and kind of pick out things with them. Um, you know, like, is this car? Is this human? Is this dog? That type of stuff yeah. um, and, and what you can move there. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned at the beginning and then just, just a second ago, the Azure Stack HCI OS getting uh, more regular updates, uh, a quicker cadence there. Do you see, uh, it is, well, do you see an expansion of what Microsoft is doing with managed SQL into other elements of, of this infrastructure? Do you see a vision where Microsoft does the whole management of the software on, on Azure Stack HCI, for instance, or, or other components within the, the system? So there definitely are things that are happening. I can't go into too much detail about the the, the uh, new features that may or may not be coming. Right. Yeah, this is where my MVP hat comes on. I have to be careful with what I say. I can say that there's a lot of exciting things that I know are on the roadmap. Um, one of the more recent ones was um, the, the release of, and I think it's technically public preview still. I don't think it's GA yet. Um, just to link back to the, the support experience, the, the ability for you to have a remote support experience with Microsoft. Um, you basically install a small agent that's connected to Azure that lives on your Azure Stack HCI host. Um, you open, let's say you have to open up a ticket, you open up a ticket, the support representative says, hey, can you allow me to dial in, phone home, whatever the term they're gonna use is, and they can get onto your machine for a certain amount of time and collect logs. Uh, they can only do kind of like read operations, not like set operations in PowerShell. So it's a lot of gets, not sets. Um, and they can collect data without you having to be the person to be collecting it for them. And that's great because you can significantly speed up the troubleshooting process from maybe one to two days to one to two hours. Hmm. Um, there is a lot of work going into the network desired state aspect of this. Um, so again, you have your hardware deployed in your data center. Um, day zero, you need to rack it. You need your network switches configured in a certain way. You know, it's one of those things that you do once and you never think about again until you buy new hardware and you have to do it again. Or, oops, the server needs to be reinstalled. I need to do it again. Um, that desired state um, is is being worked on dramatically by Microsoft. The, the 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 technologies that they're that they're working on. It's a network ATC and network HUD. Those are the two the two very related products that uh, Microsoft is going to be pushing in the next release of Azure Stack HCI. They will allow the OS to talk to the network switch, uh, learn information from uh, you know maybe this switch port was misconfigured. Hey, and it'll send an alert to you and say you need to go talk to your network admin and smack it around a bit to fix it. Um, just things admin? like jeez, you guys are uh, draconian over there. <laughs> hey, we can. That's a that's a Dan Cuomo conversation you can have at Microsoft. <laughs> but I love I love the um, I love the ability to be able to see all this and then again with it being all arc connected. A lot of this information ends up in the Azure portal. These alerts, these management tools, um, where you can directly control and, and react to them in a single pane of glass. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty neat. And I, I think it comes back to then. I mean, you're a big advocate of Azure Stack HCI uh, on-prem. You know, I, I told you a little bit about our experience from a performance standpoint. I mean, it's really pretty remarkable. Um, the HCI product aside, you know, you can go do a, a POC or, or get the license uh, trials to go do that on your own, you know, test kit uh, if you like. But it seems to be the Azure Arc thing is going to be broadly uh, applicable to, as you said, uh, a wide audience that's using Amazon mm -hmm. or VMware or Azure or any of this stuff. Uh, what uh, you're not the sales guy, but is there a, a, a POC or a pick up and go kind of uh, uh, way to, to start to experience Arc? The easiest, like? the easiest way right now is to open up your browser, 
and Google Azure Arc Jumpstart. Okay. Azure Azure Arc Jumpstart is uh, managed and maintained by a group of Microsoft employees that are brainiacs, super smart people. Um, basically, it is a um, single click and deploy into an Azure subscription where depending on the scenario you pick, it will spin up your infrastructure for you in a lab environment. So we'll focus on SQL Server for a minute. Um, you can pick the jumpstart for SQL Server managed instance through Arc. It will deploy a domain controller in the cloud for you as a small VM. It will deploy an AKS cluster in the same subscription in the cloud and it will configure all the uh, Azure Arc goodness uh, extensions and what have you that you normally would have to use PowerShell or maybe the command line to enable. Um, it will run all these for you. It takes maybe like 30 minutes to 60 minutes to deploy the whole lab, but it will give you an environment that uh, you can play around with like a sandbox and destroy it. And if you do, you can just delete it and recreate it with this another single click of the button. No, I love that. I mean, NVIDIA has done a really good job with their launch pad uh, set up for people that want to get touch some of the hardware like GPUs and the Bluefield um, uh, smart NICs and, and other stuff because not everyone is going to, especially when you start getting into the hardware, going to be able to spin those things up and, and can't go requisition mm -hmm. a, a box of Bluefield just to mess around with. Yep. So these labs, I mean, these companies have got to get smart to help help their their customers and prospects get hands-on and, and play. So that's that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. well, I'll find a link to that and, and put that in the uh, the notes too so people can check that out. Uh, Ernie, this has been a great conversation. I love hearing from the practitioner standpoint, you know, what you're doing, the things you're thinking about. I think that's useful to the broader IT audience. Um, and uh, you managed to get through this without uh, being too much of a Microsoft fanboy. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> so that's yeah, good too. Yeah, right? try not to show, but no. Yeah, we... you, did a, you do a good job of playing the middle and, and, and delivering the information as you see fit. And for, for an organization your size to be as far into Hyper-V, Azure Stack HCI, Azure Cloud, all this other stuff is... is uh, pretty remarkable. You, you guys are, are out there in the front. So we, we appreciate that. And uh, yeah, it's been absolutely. a great conversation. Yep, great. Love doing this type of stuff. Anytime you want to chat, let me know. You got it, buddy. Thank you. All right, All right no problem.